0: (laughs) Thank you, Brad. That was great. All right. Our teaching series is a series in which we are using the metaphor of a house as a picture of the church. And we're asking the question, what are are God's designs for a house, his blueprints for a vibrant church? What does a vibrant biblical church mean? look like. And so we began in the foundation and we said the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. And then we went into the living room and we said that living as a Christian is is worship. All of life is worship. And then we went into the into the family room. And we talked about how in a biblical church there is warmth and fellowship and love and care and mutuality, commonality, that koinonia Very horizontal in our expression of the love of God in our hearts. And then last weekend, we went into uh, the kitchen, everybody's favorite room in the house, where we are fed, where we are nourished, and we saw that in the church, it is God's plan that the Word of God, by the Spirit, provides the nourishment for the church, and that in the corporate sense, that it is the proclamation and the preaching of God's Word that feeds the congregation. Now today we are actually stepping out of the house and we're going uh, into the backyard typically where we are going to the family garden, the garden. Now how many of you grew up in a home that had a family garden? Would you raise your hands right now? Okay, here in Indiana it's a common thing. Uh, and I did as well. Although I grew up in Iowa, similar to Indiana, where any seed you throw on the ground, it just grows, right? The the fertile, the fertile Midwest, it just, it just, it just grows. And so I grew up just outside of town. We had, I think, like three acres of of land, and so my parents decided early on that a family garden was a great way not only to provide for the family, but also to teach these very irresponsible children responsibility. So we had a very large garden. I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm speaking on this. Do you have a picture of our family garden that we had all those years? And she looked and looked and looked and she found not one picture of the garden. Otherwise, I would show it to you. But we had this great big garden and the way that it worked in the DeWitt home was that my parents made assignments in the garden where each child had a certain number of assigned rows that he or she was responsible for. So I was the oldest of the four children. And the way this worked is early on, I don't remember how old I was, i may maybe nine years old, eight years old, something like that. as the oldest, I was assigned five rows in the garden that I was responsible to weed and to care for and to keep in tip-top shape. My sister, Barb, who is one year younger than me, she was assigned four rows to weed and to care for and to make sure it's in tip-top shape. My brother, Scott, three years younger than me, was assigned three rows that he was responsible for. And my sister, Terry, the youngest, the spoiled, rotten youngest was assigned two rows to care for. Now, I want you to know that the garden was for us children. It was the, the blight of our existence. It was the bane of all life. To The thought of going into the garden and actually caring for those rows and weeding and all the rest, it was completely inconvenient. It was nothing that we wanted to do. And, and uh, just the thought of it made us want to run and hide. Now, for me in particular, I felt a great sense of injustice because when the rows were assigned, me with five, Barb with four, Scott with three, and Terry with two, the spoiled rotten one, uh, I was like nine years old when we began this. Well, over the years, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, all the way into high school, the row assignment numbers never changed. (laughs) so that I always had five and Barb had four, even though she was older than I was when I was assigned five. Now, she's a girl, you know, but my brother Scott was assigned three and had three rows, I think, until his senior year of high school. And Terry, of course, the spoiled rotten one, always only had two. To me, there was a great sense of injustice about this. Why would I have five and they four, three, two? It just, it just didn't seem right. But all that to say that we really did not appreciate at all uh, working in the garden. Was there any thought in our minds that the labor of our hands was helping to provide for the family? No. No. Was there any thought in our mind that the labor of our hands was teaching us good principles of responsibility that would carry us through for years to come? No. Did we care at all that we would actually eat the food that we ourselves were producing? No. You can buy all that at the grocery store anytime that you want to. (laughs) And so the garden for us was suffering. And my lack of enthusiasm, I would say now, uh, showed that uh, for me, serving in the garden uh, was, was, truly about, was truly about me. That I did not enjoy this and I saw no purpose in it. Tonight, what I want to say to you is that every church has a garden and every church is a garden. And within the garden of the church, there are ministry and gospel needs and opportunities that the Lord of the house has assigned, has equipped and enabled his people to care for, to weed, to fertilize, and to serve him with the kind of enthusiasm befitting people who hold him in high regard. That's basically what I want to say tonight. Now let's get into this a little bit from God's word. And uh, as we get into that, I I, I want you to know that a few years ago, our staff and our leadership at the church, we spent a great deal of time wanting to essentially uh, define our discipleship Expectations, our picture of disi- what it means to be a disciple of Christ here at Bethel Church, very simply. And so we, we spent and we wanted it to be memorable, we wanted it to be simple, we wanted it to be doable. And so we whittled it down to what we called the three E's. The three E's that every quality disciple of Jesus will personally involve themselves in on a regular basis. And those three E's were, we have them here, exalt, Experience and engage by exalt; it is the life of worship. It's the li- it's the it's the living room. By experience, it is that horizontal Christianity of our faith lived out in community with others, which we we called the family room. And engage now was that opportunity to serve and to bless the church, and that's what we're calling the garden now in this analogy. And all three of these are vitally important, and all three come straight from Scripture. And tonight I want us to see this third one engaged from 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you would turn there with me, if you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. Now last week, we studied Nehemiah 8, didn't we? And do you remember what they did in Nehemiah 8 for the reading of God's Word? Why don't we do that Tonight Can we do that, and let us stand for the reading of God's word? First Peter four, we begin in verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 10. "As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. May he bless the reading of his word. Thank you. You may be seated. Now we're really going to focus tonight on verse 10. There are three clauses in verse 10. They provide a very simple outline that everyone can follow for what we want to see tonight. Notice first of all, that first clause, it says this, As each has received a gift. The first thing that we see is that every Christian has been given a gift for serving the Lord. At least one gift. Now, the Greek word that we have there is the very familiar charismata. We've talked about this in the past. Charis is the Greek word for grace. Mata is the Greek word for gift. A charismata, then, is a grace gift. A grace gift from who? The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that these gifts come from the Holy Spirit. And we find in Scripture that one of the really exciting things that God gives to us when somebody comes to understand and believe and trust in Christ as Savior, not only does the Holy Spirit make us alive in regeneration, he also equips us to serve in the church, to serve in the garden. He gives every Christian at least one gift. Now, I think he gives... Uh, many people more than one, but at least one gift, so that I could say to every Christian that is here tonight, the Holy Spirit has given you a gift. Now, who here doesn 't like getting gifts? We all have the gift of receiving don 't we? love it, of course you 've received a gift from God. Now what is what are these spiritual gifts? one of my one of my trusted writers says this about spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. See that? Any ability empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in the ministry of the church. Now people debate whether or not uh, spiritual gifts are natural gifts uh, that we use for spiritual purposes or if they are things that we didn't naturally, weren't naturally able to do I would say it this way. It's both. Your spiritual gift may be a natural gifting that God gave to you that now because of, of, of becoming a Christian and now with the Holy Spirit within you, God can take a natural gift and he can use it in, in supernatural and in spiritual ways. That is a spiritual gift. So that you might, before you were a Christian, you Christian, you were really good with your hands. One of those guys really good with your hands. Now you come to faith in Christ. Your heart is broken over your sin. It's made alive with, uh, with, with love for Christ. And now you begin your spiritual life and you're like, I want my life to matter for the Lord. And you have a heart to help and to serve. And God can take those natural gifts now and use them in profoundly wonderful ways to bear spiritual fruit. And we see that all the time around the church. Now, the other side I think is true and it may be more often true that a spiritual gift is something that God enables and equips that before salvation not only could you not do you had no desire to do it but once again now regeneration I am made alive I'm a new creation I come to follow Christ as my savior And all of a sudden, I find in my heart desires to do things that I didn't previously want to do. And an enabling and an equipping to do it. I've I've said it before that I remember times when when I was growing up, one of my greatest fears was to ever stand in front of people and say something. I remember literally Have you ever been so afraid your knees were shaking in your boots? Maybe you've heard that. Or shaking in your pants. That's what I I literally, I would stand in front of people and my legs, they would shake like this. Maybe you can't see that, which is all probably just as well. They would shake in my pants. I was so afraid. If you'd have said, you know what, you're going to do it every sixth day for the rest of your life. I would have said, shoot me now, right? (laughs) I don't want to do that. It's terrifying to stand in front of people, they look at you with their own strange looks on their faces, giving you the idea that they don't agree with what you're saying, making you wonder why they come week after week at all. It's a terrifying thing, especially the front row. (laughs) But this is how God oftentimes works, isn't it? He changes our hearts. And along the way, we find ourselves doing and involved in things that we enjoy that we wouldn't have previously, and we delight to see God bearing fruit through us, which brings tremendous meaning and joy in our life. This is the blessing of of a spiritual gift. It truly is a gift. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How do we die, friends? What does that mean? Is it just a word? I would say to you, the way that we die, one of the expressions of dying, or as Jesus says, taking up our cross and following him, we express that with a desire to serve him, to be faithful in the garden, to do all that we can in our rows, So that the Lord of the house is glorified and is honored. This is one of the expressions of dying to myself and living to Christ. So spiritual gifts are are the enabling to do ministry in a way that produces fruit. All of us have one. Now, the Bible has five passages that list the spiritual gifts. And I'm just going to flash them up here a second. Um, And they are... Uh, I I can read some of them. I'm not going to read all of them. Uh, The gift of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracle working, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues. That's 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Romans 12, prophecy, service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leadership, mercy, ministry. Or even here in 1 Peter 4, he says speaking and serving, which are two nice broad categories for all of the spiritual gifts. The point isn't tonight to look at that and go, i got to memorize all those gifts. It's simply to say this, and I I don't think this list, by the way, is exhaustive. It's not like your gift has to be one of the ones that we see up here. Rather, it is indicative of the kinds of enablings that the Spirit gives to Christians to serve the Lord, and they are wide, and they are varied, and nobody is exactly the same. Now, this leads, I think, to the question because you look at a, at a list like this and you say, okay, Pastor Steve, I hear you saying that we all have a gift. And I really like that initial analogy about the garden and, and your uh, clearly self centered and irresponsible early days of not wanting to serve in the garden. And I don't want to be one of those kinds of Christians. And so I'm looking at the list and I'm thinking to myself, well, I wonder which, which of those gifts is mine. How do I discover what my spiritual gift is? Well, what is curious in the Bible is that there are five lists of the spiritual gifts, but there isn't one passage that tells us how to figure out what it is. Not one. You would think on the heels of every one of these, and by the way, here are three questions to ask yourself, or uh, you know, some kind of tips for knowing what your gift is. None of that, and I think the reason for that is the Bible assumes that Christians will be involved in ministry. And in the process of being involved in ministry, discover where their heart and their giftings lie. I would compare it to what happens when the YMC opens up for Open Gym. And some of you are basketball people, some of you are not. Uh, Hopefully everybody can relate to this because I am speaking this in the great state of Indiana where... Basketball is known and loved. Amen? (laughs) A lot of you paying taxes in Illinois, apparently. But for the Hoosiers here tonight, who at least saw the movie, you'll be able to relate to this. Because what happens in pickup basketball is that you've got a group of guys, okay? Maybe eight, ten guys, five on five. And you've got a ball, two hoops, right, two hoops, and there's no real like written rules. They're not on the wall at the gym other than no profanity and hanging on the rim and things like that. There's no rules for how to do a pickup basketball game, but this is how it always works, always works this way. The guys pick up, they pick teams, they shoot for teams or however they divide up, they, they divide their teams. And you have five against five, and one team probably shoots for who gets the ball first. If he makes it, you get it. If he misses, the other team gets the ball first. And so now the play begins. And what you never see before the pickup basketball game is there is never a huddle where the people get together and they say, okay, now, which of the five of us is going to be the dribbler? And which of us is going to be the passer? And which of us is going to be the rebounder? And which of us is gonna defend the best player on the other team? And which of us is the shooter? Because in pickup basketball, everybody assumes that they are the shooter, (laughs) by the way. Especially if they're from Illinois. Uh, Just playing that theme up a little tonight. You just play, and guess what happens while you're playing? The guy that's kind of good at doing the dribbling gravitates towards the dribbling. And the guy that's good at rebounding, he gravitates towards being under the boards, boxing out. And the guy that loves to defend the toughest player says, I got him over there. And the guy that's the passer looking for the open man. And it just is discovered as the team plays the game. Now, here's what I want to say to you tonight. You can sit on the sideline all you want and think, when I figure out if I'm a good dribbler, then I'm going to play. And when I, when I discover that I'm a good passer, then I'm going to get in line so I can play in the pickup game. You will stand on the sideline the rest of your life. And that is why I think in many churches, the old rule is, 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. Why is it in the garden of the church there are so many rows that are going abandoned. Why are there so many people on the sideline wondering what their gift is maybe, or maybe not having a heart for it in the first place, which is a whole other matter. The key to discovering it is to get in the game. You'll never know if you're good at weeding the garden until you actually step into the garden. And you'll never know if you're good at pruning the tomatoes until you begin to prune the tomatoes. The tomatoes. And you'll never know if you're good at digging up the potatoes without cutting them in half until you begin to dig up the potatoes. You have to do it. And my exhortation, first and foremost, to so many is, why not get into the game? You have a gift. This church needs your gift. All the gifts that this church needs to do everything that God expects from us is sitting right before me. We are not lacking in any gift, Scripture says. What we are lacking in is the use of the gifts and the growing of those gifts to the glory of God. How about you? Are you using The gifts that God has given you in his service and for his glory. The second point that we see here in verse 10, we go back now. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. The second thing we see here is that all Christians are called to serve one another. That gift that God has given you is not intended by God for for you to simply enjoy it for your own sake or to use it for your own uh, advancement. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, now to each one the manifestation of the spirit, spiritual gift, is given for the common good. Okay, do you see that there? Why are we doing what we're doing in our row in the garden? Is it so that we can eat all the food in the row of the garden? If you happen to be assigned the strawberry row, it kind of works that way, doesn't it? One for the mouth, one for the bowl. One for the mouth, one for the bowl. It's easy to want to eat the fruit of your own row when you're in the strawberry section of the garden. But that's not the point of spiritual gifts and serving the Lord. We are collectively in this together. This church, this congregation, serving one another, doing our thing, our part, for the greater good, of the entire congregation. I think we oftentimes have this backwards. If you can think about what the attitude I expressed that I had when I was younger, it's about me. And many people go to church this way. Maybe you're here right now this way. They go to the church like they go to the mall. There are services that need to be provided. I am the consumer, and please, everyone, Bow down and serve me. And if I don't get my way, and if I don't feel like my, the, the things are being served in the way that I expect, well, then you're going to hear about it, right? And many people, they church hop, and they church shop, and they have a consumer mentality about the church. It is a very egocentric, self-centric perspective on the church, and it couldn't be any more diametrically opposed to the real purpose of the church, nor the one who died to save it and gave his life as a ransom for many. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You can read the text yourself, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And I alluded to it a moment ago, you might say, well, why should I do that? Well, if you're not a Christian, I can see why it would make no sense to you. But if you are a Christian, this means that you have given your life to somebody who sets the example. His name is Jesus. And what do we find with Jesus? When he came to the garden, if there was ever somebody who didn't deserve to get his hands dirty in the garden with all the grime and all of the, of the mud and the dirt of humanity, if there was ever a guy who had the right to sit on the sideline and criticize all the people that are serving in the garden, it would be Christ. And yet, who took the most rose in the garden? Who assumed the greatest responsibility of service? Who became the servant of all? the one who shouldn't have, Christ. He said this, did he not? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And to be a Christian means that Christ bids me to come and die, to take up my cross and to follow him, and to follow in the example of one whose whole expression of who he was was self-giving, agape love, who held nothing back and gave everything for the church. And that is why I would say to you, the church, this church and the church universal, is a worthy place to set your heart and your efforts, your best efforts. Because if Christ viewed it as worthy of that, how much more than should we? Are you with me tonight? Okay? We follow A servant Savior, and all who are followers of Him will be servants as well. Now, the third thing we see here in this text is that we are called to be stewards. And as stewards, we will be held accountable. Look at the text again as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we're called to be good stewards. Apparently, it's possible to be a bad steward. Now, we could ask ourselves, what would a bad steward of a spiritual gift and spiritual opportunities look like? You can imagine it on your own. We're not called, we're not striving to be bad stewards. We're called to be good stewards. And we find in the Bible that God is going to hold every one of us accountable for the quality of our service that we offer to him. The final judgment is not a, it's not a quantitative judgment. It's not a judgment on how many rows you had in the garden. Rather, it is a judgment of how well you took care of the row that God gave you, the opportunities that God gave you, the gifts that God gave you. It is not a quantitative judgment. It is a qualitative one. This is the point of the parable. There's two parables that Jesus told that basically make this point. Uh, We have the parable of the ten minas, and we have the parable of the talents. In both parables, basically, they're very similar. Here's what happens. There are three servants. The master is leaving, and he puts the three servants in charge of things in in his domain. And to, the, and to the one servant, he gives five talents. To the other servant, he gives three talents. And to the third servant, he, he gives one talent. Hmm, that sounds familiar to me. I wonder what passage my dad was reading before we set up the garden in the DeWitt house. Five, three, and one. Anyway, uh, in the story, here's what happens. He leaves, and the stewards do their thing with the talents. And then the, the master comes back, and he says, Okay, boys, it's accountability time. I want to know what you did with the with the with the with the money that I gave you, and the first guy says, "I had five, I made five more." And what does what does the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to give you even more than the five that the, the ten that you, that you have now. The guy that has the three talents says, "I had three, I made three more." The master says, "Well done, good and faithful servant." And then you get down to the one. Okay, he had one talent. And he's, the, the guy says, listen, I knew that you were a real rough supervisor and that you were very uh, uh, assessing in your judgments, and so in fear of all of that, I decided that I would bury the talent, and I'm happy now to present it to you. It is exactly the way that you gave it to me. Now he's thinking to himself, the goal in this is to simply, as a steward, to, to do nothing with it. And to give it back. And the master says to him, in fact, I have the text here. He says, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with a banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Listen now. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, what is he oftentimes describing? He's talking about hell. Now, I wouldn't want to build a theology of this so much on this parable, but it's hard to look at this and say, you know what? It wouldn't be so bad to be the one, the guy with the one talent. I don't want to end up like the guy with the one talent, do you? And what is the difference between the two? It is the quality of service that they provided to the master. We all will be held accountable. I'm going to be held accountable for my role as pastor and my life here at Bethel Church. And you are going to be held accountable by Jesus. You will stand before him and give an account for your life. And it will be a qualitative judgment. What did you do with what I gave you? And God has clearly not given all, us, all of us the same. We have varied talents, we have varied opportunities, we have varied experiences, varied levels of equipping, but it's not the level that we're given, it is the quality of what we do with it. Which means that all of us, here's the exciting thing, there isn't a single one of us that doesn't have the opportunity to hear that judgment from God, well done, good and faithful servant. You might say, oh, I never went to school, I never went to college, doesn't matter. I didn't have any money, hardly. I just barely made it. Doesn't matter. I, I wasn't as talented as some people that I know in the church. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're given. It's what you do with it. What you do with it. That's the judgment from the Lord. Let me give you some, qu- some criteria that, uh, that we find here for the judgment that God is going to give. Here's, I think the first one is simply going to be the work ethic that we provide to the Lord. Now why do I say that? What does, the master, what does the master criticize? He says, you wicked and what? Lazy servant. Apparently, to have a row or to have a talent and to do nothing with it in the eyes of God is to be a very lazy servant and a very wicked servant. It's not just to be too busy. It is not simply to be not able to get around to it, poor time management, allowing other things to crowd it out. It is to be a lazy and wicked servant. The ethic, the effort that we put forward for the Lord's work, for kingdom work, these are the things that the Lord is evaluating in our life. God expects us to give him our very best effort. Do you believe that? If you give a great effort for the steel mill for a paycheck or a great effort at your school for a GPA or a great effort at your gym for your health why will we not give our very best effort to the lord for his commendation and his promise of reward i think our best effort should be for our savior work ethic and it's exciting when we see it. I, an example of this, a couple weeks ago, we had our Bethel uh, uh, service day here where we went out and blessed all these different communities. Tons of people went out and we served. And uh, Jennifer and I were uh, assigned to the Ark up in Gary, the Ark ministry up in Gary. And so we rode up there with some friends and we, uh, we arrive at the ministry. We pull up and here is... Uh, uh, ben and Brian Boggs, members of our church they 're the team leaders for this ministry there, and they 're there they 've been there we got there at i don 't even know what time, but they 've been there and they 've got things organized, big smiles on their faces they 've already coordinated with the leadership of the ark. they know what the tasks are they 're organizing the whole thing, snacks provided as well, always a sign of god 's blessing uh, and To see the way that Ben and Brianne served the Lord that day, I left there so impressed by it, and I have to think, unless I'm missing something, that the Lord noticed it as well. Now, did they get a paycheck for doing it? No. Was it on their day off? Yes. Do they have a family with all kinds of things? Yes. Yes. But they have been serving the Lord and giving high quality effort for the Lord. And they're bearing fruit at the Ark ministry there in Gary. It's beautiful when we see it. And we see it all the time here. Praise God. Praise God. But is there always room for us as a church to up our game? Can we up our game? Is there room for improvement? And someday will we be glad that we gave our best effort for the Lord? You read the parable and you tell me. Secondly, is effectiveness. The one who had five talents made five more. He was effective in what he did. The one who had two gave, made, made two more. The one who had one made no profit at all. And one reason that we know that we need to use our gift in an effective way is that it is the things that we do for Christ in this life that we carry with us into eternity. My home growing up, my, my parents had... A plaque on the wall. And parents, by the way, the things that you stick on the wall, little verses and things, it has a way of sticking with your kids. I'll just tell you that. I can still quote these different things from the walls of my home growing up. But one of them was, and it's very familiar only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That kind of sticks in the brain. And there's a truth there. What do we carry with us into eternity? We carry with us the things that we've done for the Lord and the people that we've reached for the Lord. And that just kind of crystallizes, doesn't it? What ought to be our priority and where we should seek to be the most effective in our life, to give our things that matter, to give our lives for things that matter in the end. Let me say it this way. You don't want to stand before almighty God and try to explain While your kids baseball league and a thousand other things kept you from providing quality service to the Lord and I want to be a pastor who's standing next to you maybe if I don't know if that's the way that it works but I I want to be the pastor who stands next to you and when I hear well done towards you well done good and faithful servant I can't think of anything that would make me happier The judgment of the Lord upon your life. You lived your life for things that mattered to God. You were effective. And then the third thing is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Faithful is that stick to itiveness. and it's great when we see it. We have people in this church who have served in various ministries 20 and 30 years, teaching in the children's ministry, being involved in various things around here, decades of service, faithful in the ups and downs of life, in the ups and downs of church. All churches have things that are kind of ups and downs, and yet there are certain people they are faithful, they stick to to it. And this, I believe, in the eyes of God, is good quality service. And so tonight what I want us to do is to simply ask this question. If if we've been given a gift, and the Bible says that we have, and if we have this one life to offer service to the Lord, to serve in the garden, to take care of our rows, are we offering quality service to the Lord? Is the ethic of our labor, Is it a a, a good one? Is the effectiveness of our life and the things that we're really pouring our lives into, are they things that are going to matter in the end? And are we doing so faithfully? So easy to see people, they sign up for this, they do that, they're there a month, gone, gone. Contrasted with that steady, faithful, I'm following Jesus, I do it for the Lord gives me perseverance in the ups and downs because I know why I'm doing what I'm doing and who I'm doing it for. That kind of a perspective over time is the kind of life that the Lord will bless. In fact, look at the, look, look at the goal now. It's just the end here in verse 11. What is the goal of all of this? Are we doing this to make much of Bethel Church or to make much of you know, uh, our organization, our small group, whatever it might be? No, that's not the goal. The goal says in verse 11, in order that. So here's the purpose statement. In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so now we're all the way back to the foundation of the house. We're back to the Lord of the house. Why do we serve in the garden? Why do we go out there in the dead heat of July when it's hot and the kids are playing in the next yard over? Sorry, a little flashback. Uh, Why do we... Do what we do because our goal and our bottom line is that we want to bring honor and glory to the Lord. The Lord is not honored and glorified in a local church when the rows of the garden are weedy and unkept. He is honored when the people that call him Lord serve him as if they really believe that. And the quality of their service is done in a way befitting the one who came as the servant of all and gave his life for us. And that's what the kind of church that we want to be, and we would like you to be a part of it. We want everybody here to have the opportunity and the joy to serve the Lord in a kind of way that at the end of your life and when you stand before the Lord, you've got something to show for it. That's the opportunity that the church provides, and it's a glorious one and one that I've given my life to personally. So with that, I'd like to pray. And uh, actually, before I pray, I want to tell you one thing that we have available for you tonight. In the comments, you'll see a great big display board. Maybe you noticed it as you came in. On that board, we have some, I think, 400 ministry opportunities that right now are, are open and need to be filled in our church. That's a lot, isn't it? Hundreds of opportunities that need to be filled. And we have on that board, there are stickers. Every one of those opportunities, there's a little, just a little tearaway sticker. And you'll notice a card like this. They're available there on the table. It just says, name, email, phone number. And you can just pull off that. If you look at something, you say, you know I, I think I might be interested in that. That might be a fit for my gift. Pull that little sticker off, place it here. Now we're hoping some of you really catch a vision for this. Lots of other places you could <laughs> stick things there. But uh, at the very least here. And then we will be in contact with you and say, here's the opportunity, here are the details, and uh, would you like to serve? So we're making it as abundantly easy, For you to step into the garden to get a row and to begin taking care of business all right so that's available in the commons as you leave with that let us pray and why don't we stand together for prayer